When steam locomotives were first built, there was a need to know the water level inside the boiler. If the boiler ran out of water, it could lead to overheating, failure, and worst case scenario, an explosion. But it was not very practical because the contents of the boiler were under pressure. It was not very practical to simply open up the boiler and check. This problem was solved with the invention of a sight glass. The first locomotive to be fitted with a sight glass was built in 1829 by John Rastrick. The sight glass enabled the engineer to monitor the water level inside the boiler without having to open the boiler up. One end of the glass was attached to the bottom of the boiler with fittings and the other end of the glass was attached to the top of the boiler with fittings. And because the pressure of the water and the steam inside the boiler was equal, it was extremely easy to use this gauge. Here's how it worked. You looked at the glass. If the water was here on the sight glass, that meant it was here on the boiler. It was just that simple. In John 17, 6 through 9, we continue to unpack Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in these verses, Jesus says that he has given his disciples the word of God and they have kept God's word. This is true of the original 11 disciples. It's also true of every single disciple since that time. Believers believe God's word and keep it. Believers believe that God's word is a God-given message and they keep it. And because this is true, a person's belief or adherence to the word of God functions kind of like a sight glass. If someone believes God's word, that means they're believing God. If someone isn't believing God's word, then that means they're not believing God. If a teacher's words match scripture, that means they're teaching scripture. If a teacher's words do not match scripture, it means they're not teaching scripture. It's just that simple. And just as a sight glass, when the engineer looked in the sight glass, the water in the glass wasn't actually the water in the boiler, but it gave a very reliable reading of what the water in the boiler, uh, where it was at. In the same way, we can't look into people's hearts, but when we look at the spiritual sight glass of what someone believes, we get a pretty reliable reading. Enough of a reliable reading to make a discernment on whether or not they're making a credible profession of faith or not. You've heard the saying, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. It's the same principle being applied here. Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. It's the same thing. We're talking about the same spiritual idea, the spiritual sight glass. And I want us to carry that with us as we move through these three verses. This is going to be an application heavy message. So keep the idea of a sight glass in mind. Verse 6 begins, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. When Jesus says, I have manifested your name, he's using that in an expanded sense. He's not just saying, 
I've disclosed your personal name. God did that with Moses at the burning bush. He, he told Moses his name, I am Yahweh. The Jews of this first century would have been very familiar with the personal name of God. They already knew that. So when he uses the word name, it's an expanded meaning. It means everything that God wants us to know about him. It means everything that's been revealed, everything that the Father has given the Son to give the disciples, the totality of that is his name. And we see this in a couple of places in the Old and New Testament. This sense, expanded sense of name. For example, Psalm 21, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. They mean, may God protect you. Psalm 22.2, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. He doesn't just mean I'm going to mention that one single name. He means I'm going to tell my brothers everything there is to know about God. Acts 9.16, for a New Testament reference, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Of course, this is the Lord speaking to Ananias at Saul's conversion. He's talking about everything uh, there is to, to know and to, to believe about Jesus. So Jesus is saying here, I have told the people that you gave me who you are. I have told them everything they need to know about God. And they have kept your word. Now, despite their flaws, the 11 disciples here on this last night together, they have stuck it out. They are with Jesus and they are believing him and they are believing in his word. John has shown us many people who have not believed Jesus's word. As we made our way through the Gospel of John, we've seen many examples of people who reject Jesus, who reject his word, who reject what he says about the Father. What's the difference between those who accept Jesus' word and believe it and those who reject it? Well, we don't have to wonder because John tells us, it says, the people whom you gave me out of the world. The ones that have believed in the words of Christ, have believed in God as Jesus has revealed him, are the ones that God has chosen out of the world and given to the Son. Verses 7 and 8. Now they know that everything that you have given to me is from you. So the disciples don't have the complete jigsaw puzzle put together. They, they have the edges. They have the corner pieces and the border. They have, they have Jesus put together, kind of floating around in the middle. Maybe they have one line connecting it to the Father. They have that. They don't, there's still a lot of pieces on the table and in the box, but they have the essentials. They have what Jesus has taught them so far. They believe that Jesus is who he says he is. They believe and accept his words. They believe that he is the Son of God sent by the Father. Everything that Jesus said and did and revealed was from the Father. And he has given everything that the Father has given to him to his disciples. And these men are going to be the apostles in the early church. They taught it. They wrote it down. And so what we have before us today, what we're holding, are the words of God. Our old friend, the Westminster Confession, puts it this way. It pleased the Lord to reveal himself and afterwards for the preserving, better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing 
which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will, <clears throat> excuse me, unto his people being now ceased. Are we hearing this? It's saying God has revealed his word, God had his word written down, and God's word is extremely important and necessary for us because God's not going to reveal his word again. This is what he has given to the world. How else would God preserve his message over time? Jesus is not coming back annually to hold a national or worldwide conference once a year where he gets behind the podium on the stage and for the next week simply just rattles off everything we need to know. That's not happening. He's not coming back to reveal again God's word. Oral tradition, probably not a good idea. Now we're dependent on people's memories and passing that down from generation to generation. Artwork? How, how many, if you've got 10 people in a room and they look at a painting, you're going to get 10 different impressions of what that art is about. Recording, oral recording, audio recording, video recording that's relatively recent in world history? No. Written word. That is how God has chosen to preserve his revelation across time. There are some things about following Jesus Christ that are universal, and this is one of them. Believing and keeping God's word. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian in the United States, or in China, or in Africa, or in Mexico, or in Europe, or in anywhere else. It doesn't matter. Believers believe God's word. Believers confess that everything the Bible says about God, everything the Bible says about Jesus, everything the Bible says about salvation is true. This is universal. It's never been any different than that. In short, those that God calls to himself believe that everything written in the Bible is a God-given message. A God-given message. Message. Now, this should not be surprising to hear. This is one of the major characteristics that, that uh, differentiate and, and divide believer from unbeliever. This is something that, that separates the, the two groups, from followers of Christ to, to those in the world, is believing in God's word. And I'd like us to consider three groups. Group one, those who believe that God's word is a God-given message. There was a, an unbeliever that was invited to a small group men's Bible study one time. and So he said, yeah, sure, I'll go. He showed up. They were in the living room, maybe eight or ten guys. They all had their coffee. They were sitting around with their Bibles. And for the next hour or so, they, they took, turn reading, uh, took turns reading the scripture. They, they would ask each other questions. They, they would slow down and they would emphasize certain words. Some other guys were highlighting and underlining, underlining the word. And, and they got all done. And, and the believer who had asked his unbelieving friend, he said, well, what did you think? And the unbeliever said, well, you know, it's, it's okay. Um, you guys seem nice enough guys, but I just don't understand what the big deal is. I, I don't understand why you would want to spend an hour sitting around going through this, talking about it, underlining it. I just don't get it. The reason Christians spend so much time reading and studying 
and talking about and discussing and underlining and trying to understand God's word is because it is God's word. It's that simple. It's because these are words from God to us. How else would he communicate and preserve his word and his revelation over time? When someone believes, if someone's in this group, group one, when someone believes that the Bible is a God-given message, they read it, they listen to it, they study it, and they apply it, which means put it into practice. They, they allow it to govern their life and their thoughts and their actions and their plans and their worldview. I know brothers and sisters who have turned down job advancement opportunities because if they took that job, it would mean violating scripture and going against their conscience. I know some who have lost their job because they have refused to violate scripture. I know brothers and sisters who have broken off relationships, even engagements, because as much as they loved that special someone, they knew that moving forward was, was not going to be in accordance with God's word. Others have confessed shameful secrets to others because they were trying to be obedient to God's word. Many have given away thousands and thousands of dollars. Many have traveled to out-of-the-way dangerous places to proclaim the word of God. Some have estranged themselves from their children and their grandchildren because they refused to approve and support and accept sinful behavior. I mean, we could go on and on. And, and who are these people? Regular believers. Ordinary Christians. Just a run-of-the-mill follower of Jesus Christ they believe and apply God's word. They not only hear it, but they put it into practice. And they allow it to govern their life, thoughts, actions, plans, and worldview. So this is group one. This is those who believe that the Bible is a God-given message. So their position, Bible is a God-given message. Their attitude, this is what God has told us, and I want to obey it. That's group one. Group two, those who do not believe that the Bible is a God-given message. When someone does not believe that the Bible is a God-given message, they don't read it, they don't study it, they don't listen to it, and they don't want it to apply it or put it into practice. They don't want it to govern their life, thoughts, plans, actions, and worldview. There were a couple neighbors that were uh, friends, uh, neighborly towards one another, and, and one person wanted to move a swing set, so he asked his neighbor, hey, would you give me a hand? I think if we both get on each side of it, we can move this to the other end of the yard. And the neighbor said, sure. So he, the, the neighbor that needed the swing set moved was a believer. The other neighbor was an unbeliever. They struck up a conversation, and he, he talked about his church, talked about the gospel very briefly, and he said, hey, why don't you come with me? Um, Sunday, I'll be there. I, I can sit with you. And he said, no, that's okay. He said, why not? He said, well, that's, that's fine for you, but that's just not a part of my life. I, I really don't believe all that. That's group two. And I appreciate their honesty. I appreciate being up front. I don't agree with that position, obviously, but I appreciate their honesty. They're unbelievers. We can't see hearts. But that's a pretty reliable sight glass. If someone is saying, I don't believe the Bible and I don't, I don't follow Christ, that's not a part of my life, 
That's a pretty reliable sight glass into what's going on in their heart. So that's group two. They're unbelievers. Their position, the Bible is not a God-given message, and their attitude is, the Bible isn't from God, and I'm under no obligation to follow it. But I appreciate their honesty, especially in light of this next group, group three. Those who believe the Bible is a God-driven message. So they would say the Bible was written by people who were driven by a desire to write things about God and and the things of God, but they were flawed people who were bound and limited by their own culture and by the time in which they lived. And although this gives us a good starting point and some helpful insight into what people long ago thought about God and how they worship God, we can't treat the Bible as inerrant and unchanging, and we certainly can't think that it continues to speak authoritatively to our lives and our rapidly changing culture. So those that fall into group three are still unbelievers, but they do not want to be thought of as unbelievers. They want to be called Christians sometimes. They want to be accepted as full-fledged members of Christ's church and welcomed as brothers and sisters. They may read scripture, they may study scripture, they may claim to teach scripture, but they do not apply it or put it into practice. Instead, they read and study scripture and then they reshape it and reinterpret it as needed so that it conforms to and supports their life, their actions, their thoughts, their plans, and their worldview. We see this group represented as professors in apostate seminaries, uh, pastors and, and church leaders in apostate churches. We see them inside and outside of the visible church. They profess faith in Christ while at the same time they seek to justify their own life and their own beliefs. You can see why I appreciate the honesty of group two in light of group three. Group three is slippery. Group three claims to be in Christ, but their goal is to deconstruct the Bible and then rebuild it around themselves or about the modern world. So the position of group three is this. The Bible is a God-driven message written by authors with good intentions. And their attitude is this. The Bible can serve as a helpful guide when properly interpreted, but its meaning evolves and changes and shapes differently over time according to culture. So the question that I have to ask here is, which group do you belong to? One, two, or three? Group one, the Bible is a God-given message. Group two, the Bible is not a God-given message. Or group three, the Bible is a God-driven message. Helpful at times when it suits me, but able to be updated and redefined. Jesus says of his disciples, they have kept your word. Keep, meaning not only hear it, but apply it, hold to it, not perfectly, but to the best of their ability with God's grace, they keep God's word. Here's here's the sight glass in scripture, 2 John 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. There it is. If you do not abide, which means remain in God's word, the teachings of Christ, then you don't have God. 
He's saying, look, if you're not in group one, then you're not in Christ. I want to make a couple more direct applications based on these groups, based on this idea of sight glass and keeping God's word. Number one, if there are any unbelievers here this morning, I, I don't want anyone to think that you need to have a supernatural moment of conversion where you, you feel something like a, or maybe I shouldn't say supernatural moment of conversion, I should say a sensory moment where you feel something like a, a bolt of electricity or an unmistakable aha moment where the, where the lights get flicked on instantly and, and noticeably where you're convicted of your sin and you fall down and you cry out to God in tears and you physically experience the conviction of your sin and God calling you. One of the most, you may have a moment like that, but you may not. One of the most godly men I have ever met did not have a dramatic conversion experience, but said that he was quietly converted over weeks and months of sitting under the faithful proclamation of the Word of God in a local church. No fireworks, no spectacular moment, just the steady work of the Holy Spirit working through the ordinary means of the proclamation of the Word of God. So you need to understand that if, if that's you if, you, if you are an unbeliever or not sure where you're at, or you're just kind of trying to put this all together, maybe you've got some of the puzzle pieces in place, but you don't have the whole thing yet, you need to know this up front. The Bible does not change. God's Word does not change. He tells us in 2 Timothy 2.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. God does not change. His Word does not change. If it did change, then the claim to be true would, would fall apart. Absolute truth does not change. It's something that's either true all the time or it's, or it's not. If Scripture is breathed out by God and then Scripture changes, then that means God has breathed out something that's not true. And that's just impossible. So you need to know that, that up front it's not going to change. And that's difficult sometimes, especially today when we're always getting updates. Okay, our, our computer's updated, our tablet's updated, our, our phone's updated, some, our car is even updated. You, you have to restart for in order for this to update. I think we're in version 15 of the iPhone. We're just used to things being updated. That's not how it works. I don't want anyone to ever think that there's going to be a, a version 15 of the New Testament. Or that there's going to be a downloadable patch that, that makes the doctrine a little bit easier to swallow in 2023. It's just, it's not going to happen. You need to know this up front. I don't want anyone walking into Christianity thinking, well, I read the Bible, some things I really like, some things I'm not so sure about, but I'm sure that's changed. It's not going to change. When you come to Christ, you must step into group one. That's what the Bible teaches. And you need to know that up front. The, God's word is unchanging because it is a God-given message and God does not change. So that's number one. Number two, Satan rarely infiltrates the church by sending in group two infiltrators. He uses group three. 
if someone from group two tries to infiltrate the church and group two comes in and says, I do not believe the Bible, I don't find it authoritative at all, I don't believe all that, that's pretty easy to spot. Okay? But that's a sight glass that's very visible, very easy to spot. Satan's not going to be very successful sending in group two to wreak havoc on the church. He's going to use people from group three. He's going to use the slippery ones. He's going to say, uh, he's going to use the ones who say the Bible's important, who read it, who claim to be in Christ, who want to be treated as believers, but who do not follow and obey the Bible as written. And this is not new. Let's look at Jude 4. It says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. This has been going on for a long time. The word for crept in unnoticed, uh, literally translated to slip in stealthily, to sneak in. One commentator says to settle in alongside. Another says it refers to people who appear to be true Christians, but who in reality oppose the faith. Slippery. Again, 2 Corinthians 11. This is the Apostle Paul. And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. This is not new. This has been going on since the inception of the church, since the first century. It's going to go on until Christ returns. And we need to be aware of this. Why does Satan use group three? Because group three can do the most damage to the bride of Christ, the church. Group three can settle in alongside genuine believers in the pew, in the pulpit, in the seminaries, say they believe the Bible, say they have faith in Christ, and then turn around and teach falsehood and heresy. But they do so subtly, smoothly, slowly, and one incremental step at a time. The, this, the group three people don't burst through the front door with guns blazing. Group three walks in the back door with an apple pie. They're slippery. We have to check their sight glass and it tells us if they are in Christ or not, whether or not they believe and accept his word. When someone speaks something that contradicts scripture, when someone speaks something against Christ, against true doctrine, they negate any profession of faith they may make. And that's sometimes the church, sometimes the church misses that. We have to listen to all of it because some of it sounds good. Some of it, some of what they actually say and teach may hit the mark. Some of it may be true. I mean, even a blind pig finds an acorn once in a while. Some of it sounds okay. We have to listen to all of it and we have to check their sight glass. I have personally lost track of how many times I've seen something like what I'm about to describe play out. Someone from group three who says they are a believer but really aren't comes up to a microphone at a meeting or a conference or a group or to church 
And 70 or 80% of the time, they start off by saying this, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And I believe in historic biblical Christianity. And I believe in Jesus and his substitutionary atonement on my behalf. And I believe he is the only way to salvation. That sounds great. That's true. That's, what, that's how they front load the speech. But then, do you see what they're doing? They, they are using key words, they're using truth to put the watchdogs at ease. They're saying, whoa, 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 hey, put your guns down. Don't shoot. I am a Christian, just like you. Now, as one brother to another, hear me out. And then what comes next is advocating voting yes on issues that stand in direct contradiction to the Bible and direct contradiction to the truth of Jesus Christ. I have lost track of how many times I've seen this happen. Group three unbelievers settle into the church and try to make black and white issues gray issues. Group three unbelievers settle into the church alongside and appeal to your emotions and not your mind. Group three unbelievers settle into the church and make heartfelt speeches in the name of unity, love, compassion, charity, equality, and grace. You can see why Satan sends in group three unbelievers. But this is extremely important. You have to listen to everything they say, not just the front part, not just the part where they remind us that we're all commanded to love one another. We agree on that. It's what comes next. It's the false teaching. And here's the thing. The fact that group three believers are settled in among the church doesn't surprise me at all. It's been happening since the days of Paul. It'll continue to happen. That doesn't shock me when I hear someone claim to be in Christ and then deliver anti-Christ teaching. What shocks me is that I see people that I thought were halfway mature followers of Christ believe it. They hear the group three speech and then they start to doubt their own position. They start to say, you know, maybe I should rethink this. Maybe I have been too harsh. Maybe I, I don't want to be unloving. Holding to the truth is never unloving. In fact, it is a mark of a genuine follower of Christ to hold to the truth. That is not an unloving thing to do at all. Jesus says his disciples keep his word. If you've never repented and believed in Jesus Christ, now is the time. But know this, you must step into group one. You, you cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and then say, well, I don't really believe everything that scripture says. I hope it gets updated soon. John Calvin said this, he said, let us learn then to be known as children, not in name only, but in reality and truth. This, would be, this will be if we allow the gospel to take proper root in us and to produce its fruit. Otherwise, the boast that we are, in Christ, that we are Christians and believers will prove to be useless. Calvin said that. That's the sight blast principle once again. If you're a believer here this morning, praise God for giving you the gift of faith. 
make sure you not only receive the words of God as a, as a God-given message, but that you also diligently apply it, put it into practice, allow it to govern every aspect of your life. Make sure that if someone's looking at your sight glass, they can see that you're in Christ. And then finally, be aware that Satan has been sending false believers into the church since the beginning. I don't want anyone here to ever fall for a passionate group three speech at a microphone. Listen to everything they say. Check their sight glass. Believers believe and keep God's word. They accept the Bible as a God-given message. Amen.